0: He pulls these out and he puts them on the desk. He goes, like, why aren't you in art school? And I was like, because I'm not an artist. I'm a scientist. He said, you're not a good scientist. (laughs) He said, okay, so you have a choice. You can go into science and be, like, the worst scientist. Or you can go to art school and you could be the most scientific artist.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to The Sliced Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Ahrens. Today's guest is Aiden Chopra, co-founder, chief creative officer and explainer in chief of Bitsbox. Bitsbox teaches kids to code through fun app-building projects that come in the mail every month. It empowers kids to make stuff from examples, encouraging quick progress. Prior to founding Bitsbox, Aiden was a product evangelist at Google working on SketchUp. Hey Aiden, thanks Hello. for joining us today. Thanks so
0: much for having
1: me. We're so excited that you're here. I think we're going to have a good time. Me too. <laughs> so, we're going to start with your background. So we're going to walk through that all the way up to what you're doing now.
0: you want to go in reverse chronological or do you want to go in chronological order from the moment of my conception?
1: Let's go. drunken
0: haze in the back of a 1974, (laughs) never mind.
1: Let's start there, skip that, (laughs) and move forward. (laughs) Yeah, let's go chronological, though. So where are you from? Are you from Colorado?
0: I am not from Colorado, sadly. I'm from Montreal, Canada. A Canadian. I am from Canada. Yeah, Among from us. Canada, And um, born and raised in Montreal. But my dad's from India, so he's first generation. And my mom is from Pittsburgh.
1: Oh, my so, gosh. I went to school right outside Pittsburgh. Really? I'm a Steelers fan. Oh, Steelers. The Steelers. I was
0: just in Youngstown last month. Um, so, yeah, we grew up as, as Pittsburgh fans, right? So Steelers primarily, but then the Penguins and the Pirates both got good in the 90s. And so I, like, picked up those sports. And so I was the weird one on the block with, like black and gold, which was just weird. Um, But anyway, my parents emigrated back to Montreal because my dad was Canadian. And so my brother and I were born and raised there.
1: Awesome. And then so what brought you to Colorado?
0: That was circuitous. You could put it that way. So I... Oh, gosh, I you know my whole life as a kid, all I wanted to do was science. I wanted to do marine biology. I wanted to do veterinary medicine, um, all kinds of stuff. And I was a really good student until about ninth grade. Okay. and so for whatever reason,
1: thanks to it just in went. Grade or... Yeah, I went
0: south. Like oh, I never. Man. I was one of these kids who um, was good enough at stuff in elementary school that I didn't really have to study much. Mm-hmm. And then once it got harder than I could naturally do, I didn't have any study skills. And so I didn't know how to do anything ahead of time. I didn't know how to study for tests. And it all just went like completely underground. It was terrible. And so I finished high school. You know, I don't know, it might have been on a roll, but maybe not. I don't remember. And then I went and I did, um, there's a, a college, like a junior college program in Quebec that's between high school and university. That's two years. So like high school size classes, but college level Um, Like an associate's degree, probably? It is, it's a whole other, it's something similar like that. So it's free, small groups, but college level responsibility. The idea is that if you're gonna flunk out, you're gonna flunk out for free in this kind of program.
1: Prior to getting to like a full university. Exactly, Mm -hmm. right,
0: and then presumably you know more about what you wanna do and who you are. Also the drinking age is 18 instead of 21, so if you're gonna do that when you're 18, it's gonna be in this program instead of in full university. So I was intent on doing science, and I did a health science degree there um, and eventually flunked calculus because calculus is hard calculus, and not intuitive. Yeah. You know, I just wouldn't study I don't think and then I you'd took look. Calculus. No? No, I don't think so. Not at all.
1: I don't think so. Huh. I don't remember taking it. If so, I blocked it out.
0: Yeah, I think it's like that. It's sort yeah. of like a horrible car crash. It was for me <laughs> because I didn't do well. And then at the end of the semester, I went in um, – Because I had like a 42 or something. And the professor was this little Swiss man named Dr. Oberholzer. And I said, can I please just, can I do some makeup assignment? Like, I promise I don't want to be an engineer. I want to work with animals. So I just need to pass this. And he was like, Aiden, you're terrible at this. You're, you got a 42. Like, there's no way. (laughs) I'm not doing you any favors by passing you. And then he whips out this stack of caricatures that I had been doing of him all the time so as a kid like i loved science but my thing was art i was a drawer like i was the kid who drew the cover for the yearbook i did you know like i was the kid who could draw there's one in every class um so every day in calculus i would sit down and then before i fell asleep i'd draw dr Oberholzer as a little like captain integral character he was a pudgy little guy with with a little lightning bolt, and da da da, like an integral sign yeah. on his shirt. Yeah. And then I'd fall asleep. And then I guess what he'd been doing is coming <laughs> and taking the drawings and collecting
1: them. I was gonna say, is it weird that he had them? Was he I, just in hindsight, maybe? He was just stuffing them in his bottom maybe, drawer. Maybe, or, or maybe there was one or two. I don't remember.
0: But like the, he pulls these out, and he puts them on the desk. He goes like, Why aren't you in art school? And I was like, Because I'm not an artist. I'm a scientist. He said, You're not a good scientist. <laughs> <laughs> He said, okay, so you have a choice. You can go into science and be like the worst scientist. Or you can go to art school and you could be the most scientific artist. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. Mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. But my dad's an architect. And so it was always kind of like...
1: I was going to ask if either of, your of my parents mind. were scientists. No. No. But no. the architect thing makes sense with the drawing, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I finished that. I, I retook calculus. I passed by the skin of my teeth. Um, I finished that little degree... And then I went to art school. So my undergrad, right after the science degree, was at NASCAD
1: in Halifax. Okay, NASCAD.
0: So NASCAD is a college of art and design. And I really wanted to do industrial design, um, but they didn't have that program. So I did jewelry and metalsmithing, which was similar. I could work at that scale. It was about craft. It was actually a really wonderful program. Uh,
1: sounds really. Nova Scotia sounds pretty. It is pretty. Yeah. yeah sounds peaceful. I was peaceful. too poor
0: to eat the good food. But it's not like a ritzy place. Yeah. So.
1: Kind of like a fisherman yeah. vibe is what there's I think. There was a lot I... of
0: fisherman-y fisherman Yeah, kind of things. <laughs> a lot of lobster silhouettes all over everything. Yeah. But it was the 90s, and so it wasn't quite as probably bad as it is now.
1: So you're making jewelry. I was making jewelry. Metal mm-hmm. smithing. Yep. And then what happened next?
0: Uh, there's a program in North America where you can exchange to a different art school anyone in North America, and pay homeschool tuition. So I took advantage of that, and I transferred to RISD for a year, which is a really, really well-known art school in Providence, and was in the jewelry and metalsmithing program. But out of all the students, I was the only male. It was 40 women and me. uh, And they just didn't have many men in the program for whatever reason. That's interesting. And it was just weird. Like, it's weird. It's it's sort of, when I think now, and I meet women in computer science were like the only woman in their class or the only engineer in their program. I think back to how weird it was um, to be in this sort of single gender environment. It was just really off-putting. So I muddled through that. The, the background that I had wasn't a great fit for what they were doing for a lot of reasons, but I managed to wheedle my way into a second semester there where I did architecture. And I realized, oh, okay, I think this is what I need to do.
1: Okay. But you're not an architect, are you? But
0: I'm not. So I finished that degree <laughs> in fine art, and then eventually I like took a year and I worked as a graphic designer uh, in Vancouver, working for a mining company. And one of my main jobs was to Photoshop the trees back into aerial photographs of like mining sites for the environmental review, like PR stuff that they did. This is why I'm going to hell. Um,
1: okay. And so
0: everything I do from here on out is just trying to burn off the karma
1: of of photoshopping the trees back in. Was the trees it out and of the wildlife? Guilt? The, oh, wildlife but as no, well. No, it was like oh, they,
0: you know, I don't like know if you've ever seen deer? aerial photography of like pit mining, of strip mining, but it's really terrible. You basically take these you know beautiful chunks of Mexico or British Columbia just or Chile or wherever, and they just it's this huge gray gash scar through the, and it's disgusting. And so you can. I did lots of things there, but that was the worst thing. I would make the tailings ponds, which are this bright, beautiful yellow, because they're poison. And I would sort of desaturate them a little bit so they didn't look quite as poisonous, as terrible. really
1: helping out the greater good there. Yeah, it was definitely
0: Mm -hmm. a force force for good. But um, (laughs) I learned a bunch and made some good friends. And then I ended up going to uh, Rice down in Houston for graduate school for architecture. Okay,
1: gotcha. Okay. So I
0: ended up, that's a four-year program. So that's where I did my master's of architecture.
1: Okay. And then after you graduated, what was your official first job?
0: Well, my official first job was probably like cartoonist when I was 13 for like an after-school program or something. So I worked pretty consistently from probably puberty on. Like I always had little side jobs, little side gigs. And it wasn't because I wanted money or needed money or anything. I think it's some combination of... um Having some skill that people found actually marketable. Um, Having a personality that really liked teaching people stuff. So it was almost always about that somehow. And my dad is a workaholic. And so it was just weird to not be working in Mm -hmm. our family. It's just kind of how we were. Well, when
1: it's instilled in you. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
0: So out of Rice, I was recruited at Rice um, right you know, in the last semester of my graduate program, by a classmate of mine who was working on SketchUp, which was this little startup in Boulder. I'd never been to Boulder. I knew SketchUp because he was my classmate, and I was using it as part of my work. It's a 3D modeling program that lets you do architecture and industrial design, lots of other cool stuff. And they needed somebody to do sales and marketing for education. So I, I remember I had been nocturnal for that whole semester, like my natural cycle is to be asleep during the day. <clears throat> so I had been up all night, or maybe several nights working on my thesis, and I get this random call out of the blue from a person I'd never met. And he goes, hey, I'm Tom at SketchUp. i like I've only been asleep for two hours, it's probably four in the afternoon. <laughs> I pick up this call, and he's like, I'm Tom from SketchUp, and we have this job opening, I was wondering if you might be interested. And I was asleep, and I was like, I don't know you tom
1: <laughs> do i know it, tom and i'm <laughs> so
0: busy on this thing i'm working on if if you could please just call me back in two weeks
1: <laughs> and then <laughs> i went back to sleep you know. and i woke
0: up and i was like i had the craziest dream was, i was just
1: gonna say it's like a dream yeah you yeah know? no it
0: would be like if i mean i don't know what software what software do you use a lot
1: oh, like a like i don't know crm stuff
0: right so if somebody from that company just called you and was like hey do you want to work for us but like in the middle of the night. So I woke up and was like, I don't know if that happened, but I dreamed that Sketchup from this plate killed and offered me it was just really strange. But it turned out to be true and they interviewed me.
1: So he called you back two weeks later. He
0: called me back and they set me up for this interview, but but I did not want to work in software. I wanted to be an architect. Mm-hmm. My plan was to go and design elementary schools. And so there was this firm in Seattle that I was really intent. I'd worked met a couple people from there. plan was, Finish in Houston, move back to the Northwest because I'd been in Vancouver and I missed that. Um, and here was this total side thing, right? Like, do you want to come to Boulder in Colorado? I'd never been. I didn't. Ugh, I don't want to do that. Sales and marketing? Are you kidding? Like I'm a designer. Pfft. And so uh, I didn't really take the interview that seriously. And and I I guess it was just this conversation. It was three people. One of them turned out to be the president, who's a pretty serious guy. But again, I wasn't. I didn't want the job. And so they were like, "Okay, I guess we should bring you up here to interview you." And I was still on the call, um, and I said, "You know, if it would, if it would help, I like with my airfare, I'd be happy to to like drug mule a, a condom of coke or something up there. You know, whether I swallow it or insert it, <laughs> whatever you need me to do." Um, oh and they, there was just the silence on the other end. I was like, "Well, at least I don't have to move to Boulder." <laughs> And then they just started laughing, and then they kind of went on mute, and they're like, "We need to get you up here." So it it was just—it happened to be that the they really weren't expecting that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's like one of a sequence of times when I was a little bit, or maybe a lot, inappropriate with a group of people I didn't know, and it turned out to work.
1: See, people are drawn to that, though. Well, they're drawn. Maybe there's something wrong with
0: these. There's something wrong with these people too. (laughs)
1: So you go up there.
0: And they didn't make me do that, which was great. I was Oddly, just going to say, we don't or have without. to smuggle drugs from Texas to Colorado, actually. Okay, great. Yeah, so, so you got to wrong. Boulder. Did mm-hmm. you
1: fall in love, love at first sight?
0: I got to Boulder, and it was this weird thing. I'd never been, and I'd certainly never experienced the Pearl Street Mall. And I was dressed for an interview. So I was wearing like the only, I'd been a student for years. And so the only nice pants I had were these like heavy wool pants and a dress shirt. And it was May in Boulder well, it was warm yeah, definitely but beautiful right And so I, I sitting on, I go in and like Tom who was interviewing me was like wearing shorts and flip-flops. he's like a, a former try guy. He's a good friend now and is actually on the board of our current company. Um, but he's like, dude, I should have told you not to dress up And I'm like, I'm so hot and so itchy it's so uncomfortable. And so I went and I interviewed and then they're like, okay, why don't you go we've got another group of people for you to talk to in like an hour but just go kill some time in the mall. And I was single at the time, um, and I went out and I sat on this bench, and I was like, I don't want to do this. Like I'm, my plan is to go to Seattle, be an architect, design schools, make stuff for kids. That's like what I'm interested in doing. Uh, but then there was this. It was weird. There was like some sorority was rushing or something, and I'm not like a, I'm not like i I'm not like a girl crazy person or anything <laughs> like that, but. But I'm sitting there going like, I don't know if I should do this. Like, do do I really wanna do this? And then, I'm not even joking, like, I don't know, 30 to 100 young women (laughs) wearing like sashes, like beauty pageant sashes and like heels and skirts or whatever, come running, ah, they were drunk or whatever in the middle, of ah, and they're running down the mall and just wash over, like around me like a wave breaking. And I'm not a religious person. And I don't really believe in faith, but I was like, okay, I guess that's a. It's a, if it's a sign, I guess. It's a
1: selling point. It was a is selling what point. you're saying? I don't
0: even know. Like, I'm not into, you know, it's not like yeah, hey, sorority girls. It was a stupid, but it was just nothing that had ever happened to me in my life before. And plus, Boulder's it was beautiful then, and it's beautiful now. This is Boulder in 2004. And there's the I was outside the Boulder bookstore and mm. it's the pedestrian mall. It was and Kismic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The
0: flowers were blooming and oh, it man. was like buskers playing music and I was like, this is really nice. Mm-hmm. So Throw I moved in to the Boulder
1: girls and you were
0: girls didn't matter because I um, <laughs> there was a, a woman that I was kind of in love with back from grad school and she moved to LA and didn't have uh, a job yet. And so we spent that summer when she was in LA and I was in Boulder like chatting back and forth, uh, and it got sort of flirty. And then she still didn't have a job a couple months later, and I had to go to a conference in San Diego. So I was like, well, you're unemployed. Like, it's really stressful. You should come down and visit me. And we got together, and we've been married. for We've been together for 17 years. So Love that. Didn't need the co-eds and the sashes yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. Love so that. So it all worked out.
1: So you you accepted the job?
0: I accepted the job. Um, and they had to... Uh, so It was weird. Like They were a 30-person outfit at the time. Uh, their sales lead, um, Nancy Trigg, had been really successful selling to this, like a huge order, like a $150,000 order to this university in Massachusetts. And I think when the board saw that, they went, ooh, we need to hire somebody specifically Go out to get this money. Um, and they brought me on, and I looked around, and there just weren't many other programs who were buying for their whole schools like that. And So pretty quickly I realized that instead of this being a sales endeavor, it was more of a marketing effort. Like we should be giving away our software or giving it almost for free to students to try and get them to use it so that they'd know the software by the time they entered the workforce instead of trying to monetize by selling it to students early. And so that pivot took a couple months, I think. It took a couple months for me to realize that, another couple months to kind of convince the board that my role was more of a marketing role and less of a sales role. so once that happened, it all went really well.
1: And so where does Google come in?
0: So two years later, in 2006, um, Google purchased SketchUp. Okay. Because Google had just purchased Google Earth, And if you remember Google Earth in 2005, 2006, it was flat. There was no, like, 3D buildings or anything on it.
1: I think I do remember that. Mm
0: -hmm. So you would go, and it was, like, uncanny. There was this big, you could type in any address, you could fly anywhere. But it was just flat aerial imagery on the surface. And they had this dream of creating 3D geometry on top of it. And at the same time, a couple of our engineers had used an API that they had to figure out how to put 3D models from SketchUp into Google Earth. Like, place them there. And then um, the co-founder of SketchUp, this guy Brad Shell, is like one of the best sort of salespeople, visionary types you can imagine. And convinced the people at Google that if Google bought SketchUp, they could give SketchUp away for free. And then everybody in the world would use it to model like the buildings around them. And then in a couple years, Google would have a fully built out user-generated content uh, version of the world in 3D was a bit of a pipe dream and didn't work out quite that way. But that that was why Google bought SketchUp in the first place. Not because it was like a pro tool for architects.
1: Mm-hmm. So then now you're officially working technically for Google. Not at all. Not at all.
0: Not at all. So I was at Google for six years. And it was great. I actually um, – so Brad, the, the founder at SketchUp, had been uh, the person who was writing the newsletters. So back in like 2004, the notion of content marketing – was just kind of like people had started to develop really big email lists. Um, social media wasn't really a thing yet. Uh, now we we sort of like there's whole fields of content marketing. There's people who do that all day long, and it's just an understood part of the whole practice of it. But what Brad started was basically just an email newsletter to what turned out to be millions and millions of people in a super informal voice. Right? There was no uh, there wasn't Mailchimp or anything like that back then. At least that we were using. Uh, and so his, his newsletters were just written in the first person. They were never from the point of view of the company. It was always just, hey, Brad here. Uh, you'll never believe what Denise found in her desk this week. And check it out. Look at this cool model one of our users made. Um, and I had a writing style that was similar. Like I could ape his writing style pretty well. And so as he transitioned out, when we went to Google, I kind of transitioned in and started writing this newsletter. And so one day, I'm in Mountain View on the campus, and we had Blackberries at the time, and I get this email, comes through my BlackBerry, and it was from somebody at Wiley Publishing. And they said, uh, hello, I'm so-and-so. I'm an acquisitions editor here on the For Dummies imprint, and uh, we're looking for somebody to write a SketchUp for Dummies book and uh, or Google SketchUp for Dummies book. And we found examples of your writing online, and we feel that your writing is appropriate for the Dummies brand. <laughs> I was like,
1: Flattering. I don't know
0: if that's good.
1: I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, yeah. Right? I think. There's lots of dummy books. They've been very successful.
0: They're so successful. Like yeah. If you squint at the bookstore and just look at all those yellow books, there's so many. Yeah. So and did I, you but, do it? Well, yeah, I did, but I'd never written a book before. They're like, okay, it's. 400 pages you got four months
1: did you get like a ghostwriter you had to do it yourself no,
0: no no i mean i can write and i can draw and stuff and i love to teach the stuff but basically google was amazing and gave me four months as kind of like a sabbatical they continued to pay me and said just use these four months to write this book and i did but like i'm a procrastinator right like i never ever developed the habit of what i need to do so I used to just wait until the very last minute and then crank something out, and that's what I wrote. But I couldn't in this circumstance. So it was this amazing opportunity to be like, all right, if I need to deliver 400 pages in four months, that's 100 pages a month. That's this many pages a day. Hold yourself accountable. Right. And so I would do something like I'd go to Starbucks, and I'd sit and write. And if I could get my three pages written, then I'd have the rest of the day off. And some days I wouldn't be able to write anything. Um And I'd be up until late at night or something like that. But after four months, I'd done the thing. And then I went back to my regular job. And uh, a woman named Allison McDuffie, who had worked with me on education, had taken over what I was doing. And so I didn't have a job anymore at Google. I mean I had a job. But at the time, all you had to do to order business cards (laughs) was put into this little portal what you wanted the business card to say.
1: Seems dangerous. And I
0: had a, a boss who didn't know what to do because, like, it, it, we were misaligned. It was We were their second acquisition, I think. And so they really didn't know how to bring in new people. So the boss didn't even know who I was. Like, nobody knew what I was doing. And so I wrote on the business card product evangelist as my title. And the cards came. And then I just started <laughs> telling everybody I was the product <laughs> evangelist. Uh, okay. And it worked yeah. And so then I was the product evangelist, and they needed people to fly around. At the time, still only like six, 7,000 people worked for Google, and people still thought that people who worked at Google were like mad geniuses. Like they had this reputation for being really hard to work for. And so lots and lots and lots of conferences all around the world wanted a keynote speaker from Google, and Google was too small and kind of like flat and meritocratic to say like, you must be a vice president, blah, blah, to speak on our behalf. They just let me fly around the world and represent Google. So I would keynote conferences and hang out That's and meet awesome. new people. It was so That's sweet. so cool. And I wrote the blog, and I would help to develop some training materials and stuff. But for the most part, for six years at Google, my job was just writing and speaking and representing the kind of geo, like not just SketchUp but Earth and Maps a little bit, Um that stuff that we did for Google. It was it was a dream job, it was really good.
1: That is so awesome. Yeah. So I'm so curious now, so you're doing this, you're flying around the world, mm-hmm. you're an evangelist. Yep. <laughs> so when did evangelist become entrepreneur?
0: So you have to back up, like I mentioned that my dad's a workaholic, right? Yeah. And I love him and I am grateful to the amount that he, for the amount that he worked. Like, I he's still alive, he's still working, he's in his late 70s, he still works, he keeps telling me he's planning to retire this year, or cut back to only four days a week. Um, so he emigrated from India, I mean, he had nothing. He was, you know, this is like the dream, right? You go from being mostly on the streets in India to somehow having like an upper middle class upbringing in Canada, and having kids who my brother's a doctor and I have a graduate degree and stuff. Like it's, you know, 50 socioeconomic levels in one lifetime. It's nothing like you or I will ever probably have to do. Unless you were like a Oliver Twist style street kid somewhere. <laughs> um, and so my dad, Shab Chopra, just works. Like it's what he knows how to do. And so as a kid, my brother and I were more or less raised by my mom. I don't think anybody would argue with that. I, I had a dad, but I never saw him, really. I learned to stay up late because I'd wait, stay up waiting for him. That's when I got to hang out with him. Um, so I kind of told myself that, like, entrepreneurship, because he had his own practice, means workaholism. Like, you can't be an entrepreneur and also have a family that you spend time with. You can't be an engaged parent and also have your own business. That was the story I told myself for years. But I knew, like, I'm not a big company person, Uh, In 2012, Google sold SketchUp to another company called Trimble because Trimble was interested in the architecture part of what SketchUp could do, and Google had found a more automated way to do the 3D modeling part for Google Earth part, so it worked out really well. But the whole team that was working on SketchUp went to Trimble, and I wasn't an evangelist anymore. Uh, Trimble was a different kind of company where you needed to be pretty senior in the org to speak, Um, and so I just didn't have that role. And I started to think like, ooh, I just don't want to work for a big company. I'm not a person who fits into this kind of bureaucracy slash structure. I question people's decisions a lot. And I, when people tell me, hey, look, we figured that we're all smart. We figured this out. My first instinct isn't usually great. I'm going to stand on those shoulders and do it. I'm going to go like, I'm going to assume that you guys are dumb and do it myself. Like it's not a good quality about me. Um, and I've learned that about myself. Uh, but for whatever reason, it meant that when I was in my 30s and a lot less experienced, my inclination was to not work well in groups. And So I was like, I really want to start my own thing. I need to be ready to do that. And so about two years into our tenure at Trimble, um, this guy, Scott Leininger, who, uh, he was a developer and one of our best developers, like really one of these people who could kind of go away for a day or two and come back and have this thing built, right? Like, everybody knows those devs. And he was kind of a friend, like an acquaintance, like I knew him, we got along. And I was working on posters or something for some conference we were doing, uh, and Scott ambles up and he's like, hey, you wanna go for a walk? And I was like, okay. And I was like, oh no, Scott's quitting. This is gonna be terrible, we're screwed. So we go outside the building, and, like, we're two steps outside the building, and Scott goes, so I'm quitting. And I was like, no, because you're really good. He's like, and I want you to quit, too, because I've got this prototype that I built for this thing that teaches kids coding. And, like, you're a really good communicator, and you love to teach. You love to teach tech to people who aren't, like, technical. Um, We should do this. And I was like, oh, no.
1: <laughs> when opportunity comes a knocking. Oh,
0: I have a, a kid. You know, My wife was also working at SketchUp. She still does. We'd never pre-agreed that I was going to go do a startup or anything. And our son was three at the time and had a lot of medical stuff when he was little. And so we were shuttling back and forth to New York for checkups every couple of months still then. It was just a complicated time in our lives. But Scott was amazing. And I had thought I had actually had fantasies like clean fantasies. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Years before that, going like when somebody asks me to start something with them, I need to be ready to say yes. And if that person were Scott or somebody like Scott, like Scott would never ask me. That's like when you're in high school and you look around and you be like, nobody's dancing with me. And you're like, well, like if somebody like her wanted to dance with me, like she would never dance with me. But like if she did, right, so Scott was that person for me. Just the ideal, the sort of prototypical co-founder. And he he asked me to work with him. I was so flattered. But it took me a couple months to work up the courage. Like I talked to my wife, Sandra, and we she's like, okay, you know, I think we can get by on my salary. We have some savings. We can do this. And so we put together a little prototype and we went and did a little test run at a local school in, in Louisville or Lafayette. Um And it went great. Like the kids loved what we had built and it was great. And we came out of the school and I was so – I was in the parking lot. I was like, I'm quitting. I'm quitting. And I went and I gave my notice the next day and we were off to the races. And that was summer – beginning of the summer of 2014.
1: That's so cool. So you just needed to know that it would work before you – Yeah. You know – put the nail in the coffin. Yeah, I
0: guess, you know, but it was super minimal. It's not like we took this scientific approach to user testing or anything. Like we showed it to six kids and they liked it and that was enough for me to go, okay, I'm out. Let's go do this thing. And it was the best summer. It was so good.
1: So exactly what is the goal of BitsBox?
0: The goal of BitsBox is to teach kids computer science programming. Um, Computer science is a pretty broad subject that includes Everything from coding to, like, hardware design to algorithm design, robotics, artificial intelligence, like this really big subject. Um, coding is one part of that. Coding is where you actually write the instructions for what the computer, or the robot, or something is going to do. I didn't know how to code. Like, I'm an art person. I could uh, solder. <laughs> Like precious metals, (laughs) um, pretty good at drawing. Maybe that's
1: an idea for your next box, teaching kids to solder. Yeah.
0: If it didn't involve explosives and acids, then (laughs) probably that would be a better thing. But uh, we – I can't remember what we were talking about. Um,
1: The goal of Bitsbox. Oh, right, the goal of Bitsbox. You didn't know
0: how to code. Yeah, so I didn't know how to code. So Scott was like, listen, all these kids need to learn how to code. He taught himself to code when he was like eight. His parents, he's from Sterling, Colorado, pretty small place in northeastern Colorado, like pretty rural, pretty conservative. But his parents had the foresight to buy him and his brother and his sister this computer when they were young, like in the early 80s. And Scott learned how to code on it. Um, and you'd have to like type in code that you read in books and magazines and things. And so forever he knew how to do that. So. He wanted his daughter, who was seven at the time, to learn how to code the way he could code. But back then, like 10 years ago-ish, um, the wave was toward this thing called uh, visual coding. I don't know if you've heard of something called Scratch, but it basically abstracts the logic and the syntax of coding into little colorful like puzzle pieces. So you, you write code by snapping together puzzle pieces. There's a tiny little bit of typing, but for the most parts, it's a visual approach to the thing. Valid, but Scott was like, that's not how I learned. I don't think this is any good. I'm going to build my own thing. So he basically recreated the typed 1st approach using JavaScript instead of basic, which is what he had learned in the early 80s. Um, put it online instead of on you know plastic cartridges that you'd have to install <laughs> into the side of a computer and, and had this whole kind of thing dreamed up. He really wanted kids to learn to code, but he wanted them to learn to code using typing, using, quote, unquote, like real JavaScript syntax. And so he had this very specific idea for how to do it. And I didn't have an opinion because I wasn't a coder. Like he could have been – there are many things I don't know anything about. He could have been like, you know, we're going to teach people to sail, but it's not going to be with that crappy – that boat. It's going to be this boat. And I'm like, okay, I don't know sailing either. <clears throat> Um, So I kind of went along with it. And uh, so the the mission of BitsBox is to teach kids to code, but to teach them to code by giving them hundreds of examples of working coded apps in a really free coding and online environment where they can build the, the sort of recipes that we send them or combine them or expand them into what they want or start from scratch and make their own things.
1: Hello, it's Sam, the producer of the show. I just wanted to pop in for a quick second to thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Sliced Podcast. Up next, Aiden tells Emily about how he blew his first investor pitch and how important it is to have a co-founder. What was your experience like getting kids interested? Is it hard to get them interested in doing it? Did you guys put a lot of time and thought into how to attract them?
0: Uh, well, we didn't put any Thought into how to attract them. Right, we're like two product guys. Yeah, and we didn't know anything about sales or marketing or business. Actually, none of it. What we had was a cool idea for a product, which is usually a recipe for a really terrible business.
1: It's <laughs> well,
0: maybe even a recipe for a terrible <laughs> business. But we did have the. We knew one thing, which is that we didn't know. Like we knew the things we didn't know, sort of. Which is of. key. Well, right? Yeah,
1: that's right. Because well, you, you always can find
0: people. Well, you right, but that's the you part know? of the like arrogance of it. You go. Because we knew how to do the product, we went, oh, the hard part's the product, right? Because we're the smart guys who know how to do this. The marketing, those people, that's easy, and they're a dime a dozen. Like, clearly, we can, that part we can figure out if we just nail this product. So we said, okay, we should do an accelerator. And um, Boomtown was, and still is, uh, a startup accelerator in Boulder. Um, Unlike Techstars, it focuses on even earlier stage startups. So we didn't have any traction. We just had, like, two people and, and the beginnings of some tech, and that was kind of perfect for Boomtown. So we entered their second cohort and spent that whole time trying to figure out a business model. Like We went in going, maybe it's a book that we publish, maybe it's a magazine, but honestly, who cares, right? We just need to work on this content and this platform and it'll be fine. And they really held our feet to the fire and said no, you need to figure out a way to actually sell this and who's, who's going to buy it and how much is it going to cost? And we'd be like, wave hands, wave hands, look, ah, see how cool it is? That pig is snoring or something, like really in denial. But we came out of it um, with this notion that it could be a subscription box. We had a, a mentor there, um, a guy named Alex Bogusky, who is, was one of the co-founders of Boomtown, Alex is the and Crispin Porter Bogusky, which is one of the better-known advertising firms in the U.S., and had moved their whole headquarters to Colorado. So Alex, you know, he was on the cover of Fast Company like the month before we had him, and we had him for a couple hours a week just as a mentor. That's great. So we picked the name Bitsbox because I liked the suffix box on Dropbox. The plan was to publish a magazine called Bitsbox Magazine. Okay. And we were going to sell it for like $5 a month. We did the math. We only needed like twenty to 50,000 subscribers to hire someone. <laughs> it was <laughs> a terrible plan. <laughs> so we, we we went into our little meeting with Alex. And we weren't starstruck because we were too stupid to be. Uh, and Alex like, so did you guys figure out a name? And I was like, Bitsbox. He's like, why Bitsbox? I was like, because yeah, it sounds cool. And it's He's like why don't you just do a box?
1: Like, like actually make it a like, box. He's like, because
0: you, if you put your magazine in a, just a magazine, it's like $5 a month. But if you put the magazine in the box and then put like a toy or something in the box, that's like $40 a month. you are like, oh, mm-hmm. that's way better. Yeah. <laughs> you go back to the crappy spreadsheet that we had written and we're like oh, yeah, okay, this is better. And then we started to look around. It was like, oh, the subscription box thing? This is kind of a thing. Like in 2014, it hadn't jumped the shark yet. It's still a really big thing, but there was a huge wave of die-off, right? There was like everything was a box for a while, and venture capitalists were pouring billions of dollars into this, and people were losing money left and right. But like Loot Crate had 300 million subscribers or something. And so you looked around and were like, oh, this is a viable business model. We've got a good product. Let's try that. Um, and so we came out of it and we're like, that's what we're going to do. And so we launched a Kickstarter.
1: Love it. Well, you have, you brought them with you today. I'm looking at we it. We did. Yeah. It is a real box for those. It's a physical box. For our listeners. Yeah, you can't I can see. grab one here. It is here. a physical box.
0: Sorry. I'm trying not to move my face too far from the mic while I <laughs> grab the thing.
1: I do want to see. So what comes in the box? So the box
0: has, uh, here's the weird approach, right? Like you asked before. Can you get kids interested in this? And actually getting kids interested in something is not hard. You can get kids interested in almost anything. Kids are great that way. Keeping kids interested is really hard because there's a lot of really cool stuff in the world.
1: And they have like short attention spans too. They though.
0: do. I mean, to be honest, most of us have a t- short attention spans. Kids just also have other things to do. And the kinds of parents who want their kid to learn to code are also the kinds of parents who want their kid to learn Mandarin or karate or whatever. And so kids are generally... Not overscheduled, they've just got lots of stuff that they could be doing. And so if you want them to do your thing, you need to get them back all the time. And the nice thing about a subscription box is that it's not everything all at once. You get to mail them something and it comes in the mail and then it dominates, it sort of captures their attention because it's like actually it's a literal box. You can actually open it. It's just like Christmas or Hanukkah or something. It's a gift, right? kid loves the mail. mail. I used to love the mail. So I'm opening. I okay. you can audibly open.
1: little this ASMR. There we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Later, I'll just chew up a candy bar or
1: something. Um, okay.
0: So you open the box, and when they get it, the idea is that instead of just doing this as a completely online experience, uh, you get physical materials, so actual big like collectible cards. Um, you're probably too young to remember Trapper Keepers. Do doesn't ring it doesn't trapper ring a bell. No. So much of the audience might remember Trapper Keepers. Mm-hmm. If you Google Trapper Keeper or look it up on YouTube, Trapper Keepers were these super fancy v- binders that were like fetish objects, not literal fetish objects. But if you were a teenager in the 80s and 90s, there were these terrible commercials for Trapper Keepers and all the cools had to- Trapper Keepers. And Trapper Keepers were these really fancy, colorful binders that had like divisions in them in velcro and lots of accessories and things you could buy you could decorate your trapper keeper so we have as you can see an apper keeper okay ah, ha, ha. i even replicated the trapper keeper logo with the font and it says apper keeper and i think one of the major binder companies owns the trapper keeper trademark and they we haven't gotten big enough that they've sued say, us yet this might be did the, that
1: ever cross your mind <laughs> no it crossed our <laughs>
0: mind but we're like we have bigger fish to fry than sure see well, after this podcast
1: if you hear from you know anyone illegal
0: it's not trapper keeper it's an apper keeper <laughs> so there you go it's super different and it doesn't do the things that an trapper keeper does but anyway it's binder we're like we need a way for kids to organize the things we do and so we also send projects and um, the projects come on these nice big cards and they're colorful i will show you the cards they look oh, like yeah. this yeah and Very so they're colorful. they're big like you know half letter sized colorful, full-bleed, super-colorful printed cards. And the front of it kind of looks like like a movie poster or like a video game package. And the back of it has code on it. And the code is the actual code that you type in to build this thing. But in most cases, it's just like the beginning part. It's like, hey, here's the code you need to get started with this. And then we'll put challenges on the card and say... If you need a prompt to go further, like, oh, could you make that guy go faster? Could you add a second bad guy? Can you do this kind of thing? And so kids really have to look at the code, uh, figure out what the code is doing, and we give them lots of hints and little explanations and things, and then go and extend the code to build the thing into what they want it to be. This is really cool. You say Thank it's you. for
1: children, but this is the secret. I feel like I could stand on a lot from BitsBots.
0: Do you code? Are you like a programmer?
1: No, I mean, I can a little.
0: What do you code?
1: Just little things like website stuff. But That's nothing.
0: more than I know how to do. I mean,
1: yeah. I feel like now these kids know a lot more than I do.
0: Some. <laughs> Some do.
1: <laughs> do your kids, do, I, I'm curious, did you, how, how much did you test Bitsbox on your own children?
0: I didn't because. Really?
1: Well, Bitsbox was only, my kid was
0: four. Uh, so my older son was four when he launched the thing. And so it's really for ages sort of six to 12, but really eight. You know, you have to be a pretty competent reader to be able to do this stuff on your own. So we're years away from this. But Scott tested it on his child. Um, their name is Noah. And so Noah was, like, super into this when they were eight, nine. Yeah, totally. And so it, they, they sort of developed it together, and it worked out really well.
1: So cool. Yeah. So what was your experience like? So you've got the product down. Mm-hmm. You had your sales and marketing down. What was your experience <laughs> <Down>. like with <laughs> we definitely the? Definitely didn't have it down. <laughs> well, what was your experience like with the fundraising side, the business side? Right. Because you also said you didn't have experience in that either. Yeah, so.
0: we didn't know how to do that either. It was terrifying. So uh, on demo day, because I had all this experience as a public speaker, right? Like I was an evangelist for Google, and I could stand up in front of a. I did this – I keynoted this conference for a thousand Japanese middle school social studies teacher once in Tokyo.
1: That is so niche.
0: With, like – it was very niche. But (laughs) I was just talking about SketchUp and Google Earth. It was the same old thing. It was like a stump speech. Um, But they wanted somebody from Google to come and present. But very few people spoke English, and so there was, like, non-simultaneous translation uh, or interpreting happening. And so, like, anything from having to hold the attention of a crowd of people – who didn't speak the same language I was speaking because I don't speak Japanese. Um, I had a lot of experience doing that. So demo day wasn't actually that stressful. We led off, and it went really well, the Boomtown demo day, well enough that we got invited by uh, a prominent investor group in Boulder to come and present to them, I think the next day. Okay. But we didn't know anything about investors. Our plan was to crowdfund this, like let's run a Kickstarter. Our ask at the end of the pitch was come support our Kickstarter, not... Come invest in us. We didn't know anything about it. And I bombed that day.
1: No, I'm sure you just feel like I just gave
0: the same pitch, but it was like a pitch for a bunch of drunken idiots in the Boulder Theater. It was not a pitch for a bunch of real estate developers and retired attorneys in a conference room in Boulder. And so it was awful. Like, if you've ever told a joke and then just had.
1: I'm sure it wasn't Just, that bad. No, no, it was- it, Are you positive? I'm 100% okay. positive. I don't, right.
0: I mean, I exaggerate, but not in this case. It was the worst, the worst. And they asked questions and we had no idea even what they were asking. You know, They would say like, oh, what's your estimated CAC on, on that? And I'm like, I don't know what CAC is. <laughs> I <have> no idea. <laughs> like Boomtown did a really great job, but they were early and didn't really prepare us for that. Not putting it on them, we blew it. Luckily our Kickstarter went great. We launched, we were tracking to like maybe 100,000 in in thing. And then Kickstarter featured us as one of their projects we love about two weeks before the end of the campaign. And we shot up to a quarter of a million in funding with 3,000 initial customers. And so we were a thing uh, right from the get-go and it was really good. And then based on that, we were like, this isn't going to be a problem at all. This is going to be great. We're heroes and everybody who says marketing is hard is stupid and we know how to do this and it was so hard we almost went under we didn't almost go under we definitely ran out of money come like August that was March by August we'd burned through all that because we had to make all this stuff we also right. hired it's a physical. couple people
1: it's not just yeah it, it, I mean yeah. I'm looking at the box it's a physical item and so not cheap to
0: produce I was going to say all. yeah
1: production costs overhead costs yeah, none of
0: it and we had we'd hired um a woman who was amazing as our first employee. Her name is Anastasia, and she was with us for years. And because of her, we were able to get this thing out of the door. But come August, no money. It was terrible. And so we had to start marketing, and we were trying to figure out Facebook direct marketing. We were trying to try Google. Uh, and we'd hired someone named Alex who was an old friend from Google to do it, and she had never done this before either, and we didn't know how hard it was going to be. It was just really hard. So it became really obvious that we needed to fundraise. And so we needed to learn how to pitch. And I think we made all the same mistakes that everybody does, which is to talk all about the product and not about the business, to not look at it from the investor perspective. But we managed to raise a little seed round that got us through, which was great.
1: That's awesome. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are the number one stem box for kids on Amazon. Is that right? That's what they tell us. That's so cool. It's really good. So when you look back at your journey, mm-hmm. you know what, what do you see for yourself? What are your takeaways just as an entrepreneur?
0: Well, there are, um, yeah, there's probably a bunch of dimensions there. I think if I were to do another subscription box, I have advice for people who want to do subscription boxes. Do you want to hear it? Okay. So if you're going to do a subscription box, the it should be, and this is like not what Bitsbox does. for many reasons I could get into if you want to hear about it. But like uh, subscription boxes where um, the thing that's in the box is consumed every month can be successful because people, you know, if it's like milk. Because you use it, you run out. You use it, you run out. So subscribe for soap or even candles or dog food or God knows what, right? Like in order for people to feel like they're getting a good value and stick with you, there has to be none of it left by the time their next box comes or at least very little. I would not start another subscription box business that didn't do that. Um, I wouldn't have somebody on the founding team who hadn't done marketing. If you look, the, the subscription box game now is just about marketing. It really is. It's sort of playing the, the Facebook marketing levers game. It's about acquiring customers for cheap enough and making your CAC to LTV ratio work and all that stuff that we totally weren't interested in. And still, I think we understand it really well now. But having to learn that on the job cost us millions of dollars and set us back years. And then we'd go to these conferences with other subscription box companies. And you'd, you'd meet them and they'd be like, yeah, we started last year. and We got 200,000 subs and it's going well. And there's my Bentley or something. And you'd be like, what? And they're like, oh, yeah, I was a something-something at Procter & Gamble. Or I did marketing at Lever or, they, or Unilever. Or they were all marketing people. Uh, a, subscribe, like a really subscri- surprising number of these people came from eBay. They knew how to do marketing. They knew how to do that stuff. And so the marketing people who knew nothing about the product were still amazing at customer acquisition, and they knew how to run these businesses or at least grow them. The people like us who had started with the product and then tried to figure out the marketing have really struggled, and it's hard. That said, Bitsbox is profitable now. We're a team of seven full-timers, one part-timer, Um, and we're in the black for the first time ever. COVID was terrible, uh, but it was good for a company that sells mail-order education products to children. (laughs) (laughs) So we did okay through the pandemic. um, That's great. And got to profitability, which was terrific. But so many things have had to kind of like align as stars for us to be where we are today that my advice for people starting this wouldn't necessarily be to, replicate our path because I think there's easier ways to do it.
1: Where do you see the company in the next five to ten years?
0: So we're backed by investors. Our um, uh, we don't have like a bunch of VC backing. Most of our investors are pretty small angels in a couple of angel consortia concentrated in Denver um, in uh, Milwaukee actually in Tucson just like people connections we've made. So most of the money in bitsbox is there. So we're committed to selling Bitsbox at some point. Like we will – it's either that or you know, IPO, and Scott and I are not IPO people. We're not. If we were, it would probably look something like um, – what's the one? Adam – what's his name? Adam Newman. What was the name of the company? WeWork. Oh, WeWork. Yeah. Right. I so I have – I not there's a documentary am, on that now. Here he is, and I watched it, and okay. that guy – I don't know. It would be something. Anyway, my point is I probably – I know myself well enough to know I'm – I'm more likely to be Adam Newman than I am to be uh, uh, Larry Page or somebody else, which is, like, I don't think we need to IPO anytime soon. That said, we're going to erase this from the Internet if we ever try to IPO. Because okay, got yeah. really We'll for just us. scrub this. Right. Yep. So almost certainly we will be acquired. So five, ten years from now, we're probably going to have been acquired by somebody. Um, in the next couple of years, our big strategy, right, you have to put a capital letter on the beginning of those letters, so, like, close your eyes and picture big, mm-hmm, strategy, big strategy, right, is – we found out that in the kids' subscription box game, um, the way to grow your business isn't necessarily to try and dump more and more into marketing. It's to have multiple product lines because kids do have sort of a short attention span. But if people like your product, they're willing to try another product from you. And it took us – its in hindsight, it's obvious, but it took us a long time to sort of figure this out. If you look at the major players in our industry, people like Highlights – um, who've been around for decades. Or, I remember that, the yeah, little yeah. magazine.
1: They're I, still around. Every doctor's office I ever went to yeah. under the age of 10.
0: <laughs> and my kids, I mean, everybody gets it from their grandparents, and it's it's a great brand. We actually know them. They're out of Ohio, and the CEO's a friend now, and everything's wonderful. Um, KiwiCo, who are definitely the biggest players in this space, they also have sort of multiple product lines. The way to do it is when somebody is done with your product, you have to be able to say, can I interest you in this other product and cross-sell them something else? So finally, as product people, seven years into this, Scott and I get to make a new product, which is what we've wanted to do the whole time but haven't done because, like, no, we're supposed to be business people figuring out marketing. But then we realized, oh, the way to do this is to introduce a new product. So right now we are deep, deep in the throes of creating a second product for Bitsbox. It's still coding education. Um... But instead of coding little 2D JavaScript apps online, kids are going to be coding inside the context of something inspired by Minecraft. So running around as an avatar inside a 3D immersive multiplayer environment, web-based, with your friends, joining in, and then any object in the world... You can write code on. So let's say you. Uh, so hypothetically, you could be running around the world. Do 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 do. Are you like a? Are you like a, car person or like a horse person?
1: Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to answer or, that. They're or so neither. Different. It's not I... really a binary. It's, it's, is it? Uh, they, they have nothing in common. And I guess horse over car. All right, that's I, cool. I, I get if I if I had to choose horse. No, fine. It's a little okay. cliched,
0: but it's fine. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <I've>... <laughs> so we.
0: Uh, so let's say you're on this island, right? And you go uh, in the world, and you're like, hey, welcome to Unicorn Island or whatever, but your job is to, like, turn the horses into unicorns. So what you would do is you just, like, and this is one example of a a billion you could imagine. Open ended, completely open modeling slash coding world. But what you might do in this circumstance is build a world where you and your friends can join up, run around the island, find the horses, and then model horns on them and possibly wings if they were going to be like pegacorns or like rainbow manes and tails. And then you could just flip them over. Mm-hmm. metaphorically, sort of, and then write code that turns the horse into a unicorn. So, like, makes it so it can disappear, makes it so it can talk, makes it so it can poop rainbows, something like that.
1: Awesome. So
0: you're basically modeling, which is, like, where Scott and I came from, and also coding, like BitsBox, to change the behavior and the interaction of items in your world. And you can invite your friends and you can be playing and you're coding for the purpose of making a magical/slash amazing world that you can play with it, with your friends, um, rather than just making apps that you can share with other people. So
1: that is so yeah. cool. I feel like I can see how your background, and I hope I feel like you can see it too. But it, I I can even see it how it's culminated to this point with the modeling, the architecture, the art. It's everything all at once for you now, which is so That's, cool. I think it's why
0: I'm so happy. Yeah. It's really. I feel a little guilty sometimes.
1: Well, I mean, you worked hard to get here, you know. But I, I... did, but
0: not as not as some. <laughs> <laughs> My wife works five times harder than I do. Well. And she has to deal with people. And she's really good at her job and her team's great and stuff. But in the morning, I think I'm just happier. And at the end of the day, I think I'm happier. And I think you're right.
1: I well, they that's... do. isn't there like a cliche thing that says do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? Isn't that a thing? That's probably true. Yeah.
0: Um, the other part of it that nobody ever mentions is only do what you love, <laughs> which relies on people to give you the, the room to do that and to be a little, probably honestly, to be a little selfish and say, you know what, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I've done bad jobs. Like in high school, I was a vet. My, my title was Kennel Boy when I thought I wanted to be a vet. So I would go in early, early, early on the morning on the weekends and like anything that had died went in the freezer and I'd have to give shots and clean oh up kennels and stuff. Well. That was the other reason I didn't want to be a vet. So My point is I've done jobs <laughs> I didn't love. Right. But as I've gotten older and I'm, I'll be 46 this year, um, I really, I just don't have time for doing stuff I don't like anymore. Um, and I realize that's a completely luxurious position, and you can't just tell people, like, quit your job, and do something you love, because most people don't have the opportunity to do that. I'm just really lucky, and I'm surrounded by amazing people who've given me the, the grace to be able to do that in my life, which is really fortunate.
1: I'm also really impressed you can remember you mentioned a professor's name. You remember your teachers' and professors' names. They have completely left my brain. The ones that matter. I mattered. couldn't recall a single one.
0: Dr. Oberholzer. I mean, I, I tell that story because I think it was really critical you know, I think plenty of people are willing to blow smoke up your butt and say, all right, let's just sort of move you along. But he was one of the first people that was really honest. There's the story. When we were in uh, Boomtown, um, one of the first conversations we'd had with an outside mentor was with this guy named Praful Shah, who is really well-known in the Boulder startup community for being like one of the first checks in. And he just really loves little startups, and he likes to have the first check in and things. But he is... He can be harsh. He's not a physically imposing person. He's not the tallest person in the world, and he's not loud or anything. But they were like, okay, Perful's an investor, but his role here is to just be, this is going to be a practice pitch. So Perful comes in. Scott and I hadn't prepared at all. Perful asked a very simple question like, how are you going to, or how much money are you planning to raise? That's what he asked. Not even tell me about your company, just how much you plan to raise. Scott and I must have talked for five minutes just like it depends on and we just thought we were hot like oh it depends on the, how much the, okay. and we threw any words that we could remember that we'd seen on a whiteboard anywhere around and Pafool's just sitting there staring at us and we, we literally ran out of words we didn't have anything else to say he, he didn't, the terms he didn't you say know. we just used all the jargon mm-hmm. we could think of and we just like it petered out in this kind of depressing sort of old fart kind of a way Blech. And it was quiet. And Praful said, are you finished? <laughs> and we were like, yeah. And he said, you guys have to get your stuff together. But he didn't say stuff. And like that was the kick in the butt we needed. It was like, oh, we have no idea how to answer these questions. And by the end of Boomtown, we still didn't. But the point was, it's people like Oberholzer or Praful who will actually set you straight. If you don't find mentors who will be honest with you and tell you and call you on your bullcrap... Um, I don't know how PG-rated this podcast is you supposed can say to be, but I already talked about condoms and Coke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, it's if you don't find people who will call you on your bullshit, then they're not actually doing you any favors. And so they're what just I try to do, you at that point. kind of, and they're not really yeah. interested. So those are going to be the best people for you. It's really easy when you have an idea for a startup, or even you've gotten the thing going, to find people who will tell you you're smart and it's a great idea, and they would totally buy it. It's actually much harder to find people who will tell you that you're full of it. And those are the people who've told me I'm full of it in the past. And those have been some of the best interactions I've had. And it doesn't mean it's less painful when you go through it. You come out feeling like shit. But those are the points in your life where you could actually make a change. Grow from it. Make a change. Realize that this isn't the thing or you need to work harder or you need to ask some more people or something like that.
1: I feel like that's a really good piece of advice for young entrepreneurs that may be listening to hear and hold on to. Is there anything else before I let you go that you'd like them to know about you or about your journey or about Bitsbox? Anything we haven't covered?
0: The the one piece of advice um, that I usually give to prospective startup founders or entrepreneurs is to have a co-founder, I think. I didn't understand the importance of that until Scott came and asked me to join him to do this thing. And when he did, like a- about a week after he asked me, he came to me and was like, what are you thinking? And I was like, I don't know. Under- like, what would the split be? Like, I didn't even know. And he was like 50-50, of course. And I was like, what? but you've been working on this for months and you've done this before and I've never d- – why would you be that generous? And he was like, it doesn't matter what I've spent a few months doing. We're going to spend years doing this. And the only way for us to have any kind of an equitable relationship, the only way for me able to ask you to do hard things and you to be able to be- ask hard things and – feel like we can take vacations and cover for each other and be completely honest as if we're equal partners in this. So it seems obvious, but the number of friends and acquaintances I've spoken to since who are starting things, and I give them that advice and they go, but I've worked on this for months, right? Like, I don't want to give up all that equity. Giving away half now to somebody who hasn't worked on it at all, um, it's it's a really hard thing to do, I think. But if you can find the right co-founder then you can take vacations and you have somebody to talk about when everything's going to hell. You don't have to dump that on your significant other or your friends or something. You can commiserate with somebody who's in it with you. You can celebrate with somebody who understands how amazing it is what you've just gone through, has done, in a way that nobody else really should be made to understand, which is really important. Um, there are so many amazing things about having a 50-50 partner, co-founder. Yeah, in well this. I'm
1: so glad you guys could find a way to make that work and it's have great. each other and it's worked out and here you are.
0: Yeah. So people need to find a co-founder. You need to. All right. As long as they're not terrible.
1: Find a good. Find a good co-founder. A good co-founder. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been so fun. It has I knew been. it was going to be. You. So. How did you know? I just I had a feeling. Well, that's good. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> to learn more about today's guest, please visit startupblogpost.com. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.